0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's Friday the 13th, November 13th, 2020. You look around, you all you see is a barren wasteland of COVID deaths everywhere. America has succumbed. We're all getting COVID, okay? At this point, we're all getting COVID, we're all getting zero money, and we're all just going to die together. It's going to be fantastic. Listen, we need to live out the last few months of our lives doing things we all love to do, like listening to the state of the universe. Welcome to the show, okay? Episode 81, the big 81, featuring the great... Dr. Daniel Whiteson. Daniel is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. He's the co-author of of the book, We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. Check it out below. He knows everything there is to know about particle physics. Okay, literally all of the things. Name a thing, he knows it. He's also the co-host of the insanely popular Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe podcast. And, and, get this, this might be a first for the show. The co-creator of a TV show on PBS, Eleanor Wonders Why, so if you have kids, check the TV show out. All the links for all of his various ventures will be down below. But Daniel's a, is a bucket of wisdom. Is that even a thing? Is a bucket is that a good is that a compliment? I don't know if it's a compliment. He's a bucket of wisdom when it comes to all things particle physics, okay? So we talk in depth about particle physics, about the standard model, about all of the cool things, the Higgs boson. Daniel worked at CERN when the Higgs boson discovery was made. So we talk, what was the what was it like? Finding this Nobel-worthy particle in the midst of of billions of proton-proton collisions. What do we have yet to know about the universe? What can particle physics currently not teach us? Okay, Things like gravity. What the hell is going on with gravity? Things like dark matter and dark energy. There's all of these open questions that even the standard model of particle physics cannot address, cannot answer. So we talk about all of that. I, I think, personally, it was a fantastic episode. It was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Uh, there's certain people that you interview and you just sort of mesh. You have like a good, you know, rapport with them. Is that a word? I think it's a word. Rapport. I'm going to use it. I'm going to pretend it means vibe, okay? So if in case rapport is not a word, pretend it's a synonym for the word vibe. That's all you need to do. And so we had a good rapport. And I don't know. Just It was, it was a good episode. It was a really good episode. There's some people who don't give a lot back when I interview them. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's weird, and you don't really get a good rapport back from them. Um, and then it's me. Like, I'm kind of a goof. I'm kind of an idiot in the way that I speak. And someone called me a reverent in the podcast review. Gave me a five-star. Call me a reverent. Scuba guy. I love scuba guy. He's one of my top. Scuba guy, reach out to me. I'm going to send you some. I appreciate you. You call me a reverent. You hit me with a... A thing that maybe isn't a good thing, I had to look up what the word meant, and then you hit me with the five stars because you know this is a great A podcast. You know it's a great A podcast. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is me and Daniel had rapport, so we had a great conversation. I think it was one of the, the better, more philosophically important interviews I've ever done. We talk a ton about philosophy in essence, like particle physics. What the hell does all of this mean? You know, there's so much science to be talked about, but there's also a lot of philosophy. Particle physics probes like the most fundamental reality that we can probe. And it teaches us a lot of crazy shit about philosophy, about reality, about what we are, about what we came from. So it's a really fun interview. I hope you guys uh, enjoy it. Happy Friday the 13th. Don't die of co- I don't want anyone to even die of COVID. I love you guys. This is a great day podcast. Please rate and review the show five stars on Apple Pods, wherever you listen, Spotify. I don't know if you can even rate the show on Spotify, but do it. All right. Send him an email. Write an email to Spotify. Say I rate it five stars. All right. Add a review and a rate button just so I could rate Brendan's show five stars. So I don't know. Submit like a service request or something and and write that. Go to Spreaker. No one even uses Spreaker. Seven people are on Spreaker. I want all seven of them to leave a, a review, please. Go do that. Thank you. I just appreciate you guys. The show keeps growing and growing and growing. You guys are leaving all the reviews. I ask you to leave reviews and you're actually doing it. Yeah, I have recorded 50 episodes of this damn show where every single intro I was like, hey, please leave a review, please leave a review, please leave a review and no one left one because there were only eight people listening. And now we got a global audience and, and I just appreciate you guys so much. So please support the Patreon, support the PayPal, do what you gotta do. Um, you get free stuff over there if you're subscribed. You know, I do random drawings, I send you books, I send you cool stuff. So go check that out. It's only a dollar. You can give however much you want, but the minimum's a dollar. So give a dollar a month. Support the show. Support what we do here. We appreciate you guys. And thank you so much for listening. Enjoy. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. First off, have to say it. It's it's crazy that um, like I don't know how your brain works. I would not be able to be on this show right now with a wildfire so close. Are you just so used to it at this point?
1: (laughs) I'm definitely not used to almost having my house burned down. No, absolutely not. Uh, It's a tiny bit crazy. Yesterday, there was a big fire in Irvine, and we didn't know which direction it was going to go, and we were constantly checking the updates, but uh, unfortunately for some people, but fortunately for us, the wind changed direction. is going the other way, and so our neighborhood seems safe, and so this is actually a very nice distraction to talk about crazy things about the universe and particles, and not have to worry about packing a go bag.
0: Yes, that's good to hear. Like, How many, how many years have you lived there, and went, do you think you'll ever get used to having your house almost burned down? I feel like that's just something people <laughs> live with in California now. As sad as um, it is. It,
1: yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely something you always have to think about uh, out here in California. And I've, I've lived here since 2007, but this is not the first place I've lived that's had wildfire danger. I grew up in Los Alamos, and we lived there for many years. And one year we lived there, a big chunk of the town actually did burn down. Jeez. See, I-
0: yeah. That's why I love where I live. Like, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and there is not a place on the planet that is less exposed to extreme weather of any kind. Pencil- central <laughs> Pennsylvania is there's no tornadoes. There's like rarely a blizzard. There's no hurricanes. There's no wildfire, There's nothing there. And now I just keep going north. So the only thing I'm getting in addition to that is just blizzards, essentially, which I can just stay in the house. I don't have to worry about the house disappearing.
1: You know? But you have winter, right? Central That's Pennsylvania true. has a yeah. ferocious winter, which we don't have here in California. Yeah,
0: now I live in, in Rochester, which is the snowiest city in, in the country. So, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's uh, great stuff. But I, hey, I love it. I couldn't, I love the seasons. I, don't, I could never do it. And I could definitely never do with a fire season. Okay, the very sound of that doesn't jive well. With me. It's like, yeah, it's fire season now. Jeez, <laughs> sign me out.
1: It's pretty crazy, but I think on, on balance, I love California. I'm very happy to live here. Yes, I have to visit. I have to
0: visit sometime. I've only been in airports, but I definitely have to visit when it's not fire season. But anyway, uh, that's standard stuff we're talking about, Daniel, the little pun there. Let's talk about some more standard stuff. The standard model. I have people uh, in your field come on the show quite frequently in the field of particle physics. And um, I'm hoping... I love to ask the same, like different people the kind of the same questions because cool. everyone gives very different answers and you know co- sort of puts their own spin on it. so could you break down for the show what is the standard model? when people hear that term, the standard model of particle physics, what does that mean? What should they interpret that as, and what does it mean to you?
1: Yeah, you're probably going to get a pretty unstandard response from me on what is the standard model. Um, in my view, the standard model is like a culmination of a project we've been working on for, you know, thousands of years, which is to figure out what is the stuff around us made out of? You know, this is a really basic question we still don't really know the answer to, which is like, what am I made out of? What are you made out of? What is everything built out of? What are the fundamental building blocks and how do they fit together? Standard model is our current answer to that question totally incomplete but you know we have made a lot of progress and along the way we've realized some really amazing things like when you look around you and you see what everything is made out of you might first wonder like well is everything made out of its own kind of thing like are rocks made out of little bits of rock and cats are made out of little bits of cat you know and air is made of its own kind of thing Um, but what we discovered you know a few hundred years ago around the time of the elements in the periodic table is something kind of amazing which is that the universe all the complexity in the universe comes not from the nature of things but in their arrangement and we know that because you can arrange just like a hundred basic building blocks the elements of the periodic table to make essentially everything humans have ever encountered or tasted or thrown at each other or tripped over right Mm -hmm. all those almost infinite variety of things made out of smaller building blocks and i think this is something we sort of take for granted now, but I think people should understand this is an incredible sort of step forward in a philosophical view of how our universe works, that a few basic building blocks rearranged in lots of different ways can make anything. And now we've taken a step deeper than the periodic table, of course, and you peer inside and you discover that there are a smaller set of building blocks. But, you know, this is the same road we've been traveling, that we try to peel back a layer of reality and say the stuff we're seeing, is it emergent or is it fundamental? Is it like an accident of the way things happen to fit together? Is it just a complicated arrangement or is it really something true and basic to the universe? And so inside the atom, of course, we have protons and neutrons and inside those we have quarks. So the fundamental, so the fundamental particles that we have now are the elements that make up the standard model of physics. And so we have quarks up and down and strange and, and charm and bottom and top is six of them. And we have leptons like the electron and neutrinos and four other copies of those. And those 12 particles together are our current understanding of the basic building blocks of matter. And the standard model is essentially a description of those particles and how they talk to each other, how they get glued together using the various forces and to me it's it's you know it's sort of incredible that the that the same stuff is used to make up me and you and a hamster and lava right and the interior of stars it's all made out of the same basic stuff just arranged in different ways and and also not even in very different proportions of that stuff like you and lava have about the same proportions of protons to neutrons to electrons or you know quarks to electrons however you want to view it so anyway, that's my long, unstandard answer to what is the standard model. It's this idea of the basic building blocks and how they fit together to explain the question of to give an answer to the question of what's this stuff around us made out of?
0: Right, yeah. I, well, I love your non-standard answer. Now, yeah. before we sort of delve into the standard model more on a scientific aspect, I do want to ask you philosophically, I was mm-hmm. always attracted to um i remember one of the first books i ever read and it, that sort of talked about anything to do with astrophysics was carl sagan's cosmos and and the star stuff comment always stuck out to me the idea that that we are made of the same fundamental building blocks mm-hmm. of stars and the standard model kind of peels a layer back like you said and 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 analyzes that in, in a slightly different frame of mind but in the same frame of mind mm-hmm. that we are indeed made of the same stuff now I, I I guess I call it philosophy, my philosophy, but I, I guess it's more of my anxiety. Uh, <laughs> I always thought, like, if if it wasn't for me being an astrophysicist, I probably would have pursued particle physics. I was always fascinated by particle cool. physics. And, um, you know, one of the the reasons for that is I'm always trying to probe this kind of question of what's at the beginning of the universe. And I guess some of that over the time of talking to different people, different cosmologists – and trying to understand where that question comes from more deeply. For me, it feels like it's more related to death. It's, more, it's, it's a little bit related to what comes before the universe, but a little bit related to what comes after one dies. And with the concept being that those two things are the same, um, and this is kind of my weird philosophical notion, but my question to you is, when you think, when, when I think about the fact that we're all made of the same basic building blocks, it mm-hmm. gives me kind of solace. It's like, you know, we, when I die, um, the, the fundamental building blocks that make up me will somehow persist throughout the universe. And not in a crazy metaphysical way, but in like a literal, actual, physical, uh, important, comforting way. Do you, do you sense anything that I'm talking about right now? Or are you like, Rendon, we're not. I, do not <laughs> I didn't come here for a
1: psychic reading. Guy, Get on with the science. No, I'm all about the philosophy stuff because I think two things. One is a lot of these science questions are only interesting because they are grounded in philosophy. You know, like why are these questions interesting? Well, that there's only philosophy to tell you why a question has an important answer. And I love these questions because they do have an impact on philosophy. You know, if you learn some truth about the universe, like what you just described, it can change how you feel about the universe and how you live your life. You know, if you learn, for example, where the universe came from, like the actual factual you know supported by the evidence true history of the universe that could definitely change how you lived your life and so physics and philosophy are very very closely connected i think most scientists look down their nose at philosophy as like ungrounded speculation or whatever but actually i think that most of them are doing philosophy and they don't realize it for example if you ask most particle physicists Is the top quark real or is the Higgs boson a real thing? Like, does it exist? Or is it just like a useful calculation in our minds to organize our thoughts and predict future experiments? You know, would it exist if we weren't here to look at it? And of course, 99% of them would say, absolutely it exists, you know, it's real, we make it in our colliders, it's there. But that's a statement of philosophy, not of science, because you can't do an experiment that proves if something would be there if you didn't look at it. But I think a lot of particle physicists hold that view and and don't quite realize that they're doing philosophy without actually absorbing, without actually admitting it. Um, But yeah, I, I think that um, what you said makes a lot of sense. I think that the particles that are in you will be around a long time. You know, electrons are stable. They can live for billions of years. So in that sense, your building blocks are going to be scattered to the four corners of the universe and participate and have all sorts of crazy adventures. The, there's another way to look at it, though, which is that what are you? What is the you of you? It's not your building blocks because yours are replaced. You have this electron now. You have another electron later. The building blocks are not what make you you, or you special, or you unique. What makes you special is the arrangement of those building blocks. That's what makes you different from a hamster or lava or the interior of a star. And that arrangement won't last forever, right? So it's true that your building blocks will last forever, but I think that the part that makes you you, this arrangement of those particles, that is fleeting.
0: Yeah, no, I 1,000% I, uh, I agree, and, and to be frank, the... the Final thing you said there takes away all of the curing anxiety that these ideas give me. The (laughs) fact that yeah, like there, you know, there is some some uh, we'll we'll call it magic for now. Um, I don't know what else you want to call it in the idea of consciousness and the fact that my atoms, my quarks have arranged themselves in a certain way to give me the life that I have, and Mm -hmm. um, whether or not that sticks around the same way my quarks do uh, is is a different question entirely. Um, but but you did mention something that's that's kind of important, and I talk about it on the show with like every single person I've ever had in science. And you mentioned that m- like most physicists, most scientists are sort of doing philosophy in some way. And this goes back to something I find in in a lot of scientists. I find that they fall in one of two categories when it comes to the the concept that I've I guess I've kind of cre- I think I read this in some in someone's book the concept of a big question, and I can't give them credit because I don't remember who it was. I read so many science books. Um, But regardless, the idea is that everyone sort of has a big question or Mm -hmm. they have no big question at all. And there seems to be like a very binary group of people doing science, those that have a singular important question that occurred to them when they were young um, or occurred to them through some experience, and they really want to devote a career to answering the question. Um, I, you could, you see this a lot in cosmology from Mm -hmm. like anecdotally, you see this purely Mm -hmm. speaking based on the people I've talked to that they were at a very young age, they decided like, I want to figure out what happened at the beginning of the universe. This, I will devote my career to this thing. And then there's people like me who I don't have a big question. I literally just like doing the science. I like solving cool problems. Um, and if you, I could be doing biology tomorrow and probably be happy. As long as I'm working with a cool group of people and solving a problem that's interesting, or I could be working in astrophysics like I am. Um, which category of those do you fall in? And do you agree with my assessment that it seems to be pretty binary? Obviously, we're not, we're not doing a survey here. Um, so we only know, you know <laughs> based off anecdote. But, but yeah, where do you fall on that idea?
1: Uh, wow, well, you've blown me away. I mean, I wasn't even aware there was the other category, the category of folks that don't have a big question. To me, the reason I got into science is because I had personal questions about the universe that I wanted answered. And, you know, when, when students come and ask me about pursuing a career in science, I tell them that you should think about your own questions. I think mean, what are the questions you want answered about the universe? I think something a lot of people outside science don't realize is that science is not some monolithic institution that just sort of like makes creeping progress forward inevitably. It's like this boundary that's pushed forward or pierced through by individuals asking their own personal questions about the universe. Things they need to know questions they want answers to and that's the way we make progress and I tell students that you got to find that question and that question will drive you to understand you know whatever the puzzle is and maybe that question is biology or philosophy or logic or cosmology but you know I tell them imagine you could meet <clears throat> imagine you could meet the you know the creator of the universe or the programmers of the simulation or uh, whatever figure what some some perfect oracle that could answer one question about nature or the universe what is that question for you right you have that opportunity what question do you ask And uh, I think it's important to look inside yourself and wonder where that curiosity comes from. Uh, So I suspect the second category are people who maybe don't have a singular question, but maybe you just have a lot of questions. Like I suspect when you uh, start reading about something, you're like, oh, I have questions about this and I have questions about that. So maybe it's not that you don't have a big question. Maybe you just have so many you can't identify one of them as a specially big question.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true, and I, I think maybe that this is a language thing because that's um, not to say I don't have big like I would consider the remote not working a big question of mine. I'm like, why is the remote, <laughs> going, you know? And I'll spend an hour trying to figure out what the issue with the remote is. Is it internal? Does it need batteries? You know, I and that for me that becomes an evening big question. Um, so I guess it it might be that that avenue where, and I've spoke to people on here before who who also fall into that category where. They could see themselves realistically doing any form of science, mm. um, and they sort of—they're attracted to, to physics or astronomy or some or something else because um, because it's interesting and it interested them when, when they were kids. But they don't necessarily see themselves kind of being stuck in that uh, in that field. And mm-hmm. and if a biologist came along to them and said, "Hey, do you want to uh, you know learn about CRISPR and and do something in that realm?" They would be perfectly happy. Uh, doing that, so I'm not completely alone in this in this uh, in this field, but I do find that cosmologists and particle physicists in particular mm-hmm. are the big question type of people they They have like a singular most important question that they've spent a career trying to answer, and uh, it, it's fascinating to me to see the the differences there.
1: Wow. Well, I wasn't aware of that. I guess I've been so steeped in a community of folks who have a big driving question that pulls them through their careers. And I didn't even realize that there were folks who didn't, Um, but yeah, I definitely um, am the kind of person who has deep questions about the universe. I'm desperate to get answers to, you know, some of these questions like how did the universe begin or what is everything made out of? I feel like I feel frustrated sometimes because I trust the humans will figure it out. I mean, if we don't immolate ourselves or, or whatever, if science progresses for another 500 years or a thousand years, we will answer these questions. You know, they're questions that are as important as like, is there an afterlife or, you know, who created the universe? But these are actual science questions somebody will one day know the answer to. A human will have that understanding in their mind. And I'm just sort of desperate to know and makes me want to like jump into a cryo chamber and fast forward 500 years or a thousand years and then like pick up a children's book about the universe just to get a sense for like what people are thinking and what they've known, what they've learned because I know the answers are out there right there. Actual facts we can uncover if we do enough science. So that's like exciting, but also frustrating and it makes me impatient to know.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, I, I want to know all of that stuff, you know? Um, so, so in essence, like to go back to what you said earlier, if there was an Oracle that you could ask a question to, I would be so lost at what question I wanted to ask them. <laughs> like my, my brain would just like break and I would be, and I would want to know like statistics on how close I've gotten to spiders without noticing. Like that's the extent <laughs> of the question that I would probably cut. Cause I'm wondering right now, there's probably one behind my chair and I don't know. You would ask the Oracle,
1: where is the remote anyway?
0: Yes. Yeah. Where is the remote? I lost the Roku remote years ago. Um, (laughs) So that that might be the question I ask. But um, to to get kind of back on on the science track, Mm -hmm. can you, uh, going back to the standard model, can you speak a little bit to how the standard model has evolved over time? Because we didn't just one day come to this idea, there's six quarks and there's bosons and leptons i don't quite know that i know the buzzwords i don't know the whole standard model but um Mm -hmm. can you speak to the evolution of how how that kind of came to be but you know in sort of cliff notes version and uh because sometimes with with these ideas um or with these complex models or with these complex theories we lose sight of the fact that it took a while to develop and and there's a lot of information hidden here and we still have a lot to learn so can you kind of speak to some of that stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating story. And you know the thing people should remember is that, as you say, this is not just a complex theoretical idea. This is like an edifice that we built slowly over time. And it's rooted in experiments. It's rooted in stuff we saw that we wanted to understand. And not just understand it and have like an explanation for this one thing. We wanted a universal explanation. We wanted an idea, a, a view of the universe, an understanding of how it works that could explain everything. And so we wanted to be able to explain all the different weird stuff we saw in one consistent manner. And that's really the the incredible achievement of the standard model is that it is able to describe an incredible variety of stuff. And so the history of over the last, you know, 150 or 200 years is seeing a bunch of weird stuff like oh my gosh electricity is a thing or magnets wow they're cool and then discovering that there's a relationship between those two very different phenomena like we're familiar with electricity we understand you know things can zap you and there's lightning and and you can make lights and stuff like that and we understand magnets but then there were these ideas people understood that if you looked at electricity in a certain way it had a lot of similarity to magnetism and in fact So they were so similar that like the missing bits of one sort of fit in nicely with the extra bits of the other and you could snap them together to make one coherent idea of electromagnetism. And now of course we know electricity and magnetism are two sides of the same coin. And and that's sort of foundational because it was the first time we, we were able to bring very disparate experiments, very disparate things together and explain them with one idea. And the standard model is really just an extension of that. As we discovered more weird stuff, we were like, huh, how does that fit in? We're looking for symmetries and for patterns and for one coherent explanation that brings it all together. And now, of course, the language of the standard model are particles, these tiny little bits of stuff, and then fields or things that connect them, the the particles that help them talk to each other and the first particle we ever found was the electron. This is in the late 1800s, and people were doing experiments with these these, um, tubes, these Crookes tubes. Essentially, they were just like glass tubes where you pumped out most of the gas, and if you put a current over them, then you could could see these weird rays inside, and people were wondering like, what are those weird rays? And they were doing experiments where they would bend them with um, electric fields or magnetic fields, and people finally understood that these rays are actually little dots of stuff. This is the discovery of particles as a thing. They discovered, oh, there's a little dot in there, a little tiny point, which has mass, and it has electric charge. And those two things are connected. And that's the idea of like a particle was born, that there's this little point in space that has like these quantum labels, these attributes that we can put together and say this is a thing. And it flies through space, and where the charge goes, the mass goes. And now, of course, that's a very common idea. It's a very standard idea to think that everything is made out of these tiny little dots. But that was our first clue, really, was the discovery of the electron. And then, of course, people bombarded the nucleus, and people bombarded the atom and discovered that there was a hard nucleus inside. And then we discovered the neutron and the proton, and, you know, the quantum mechanics um, helped us understand how those things relate to each other. And then in the early part of this century, there was this revolution where we thought instead of thinking about how particles, instead of thinking about individual particles, we should think about like lots of particles all together. And to do that, we had to come up with a new concept of quantum mechanics. Instead of having quantum mechanics about a single individual particle, we had to think about sort of like, you know, look at the ocean and all of its waves instead of one individual drop. And that's where quantum field theory was born to understand like big baths of particles swimming around. And so we had uh, you know, a few particles in hand and then we just started discovering more and more of them. And we found the muon, which is this weird cousin of the electron first seen in cosmic rays and particles that came from space and left tracks in these big blocks of emulsion. Emulsion is basically this like 3D block of photographic paper and you can see particles through it. You just leave it up on the mountainside, and you, and then you, later you take it down, like six months later, and you slice it into little bits and make photographs, you can find tracks of particles going through it. Um, and so things picked up in like the 1950s when we invented particle accelerators, because it allowed us to smash particles together and create new kinds of stuff. And we found a whole crazy number of particles this is the era called the particle zoo, because basically every time you turned on a particle accelerator, you found a new kind of particle, and you had to give it a name. And so it was like particles out the wazoo, We are sort of drowning in particles. And there's this sort of rhythm in particle physics that swings back and forth between the experimental and the theoretical. And sometimes the theoretical is in the lead. It's like we have a pretty good understanding of all the experiments, and now it's the theory that's sort of like pointing us in a new direction. And other times, like the days of the particle zoo, when experimental physics was in the lead, when every time you turn on the accelerator, you find something new that's not anticipated, that hasn't been explained, and the theorists are the ones like scratching their heads trying to make sense of it all. So back then, experiments were sort of in the lead, discovering new stuff that nobody understood. And then in the late 60s, people had an idea. They're like, maybe all these particles are made out of some smaller particles. And that was where the idea of quarks were born. That like these kaons and these mesons and these pions and this whole stream of particles were all just made out of a few basic building blocks. And ba- back then, at the time, they only had the idea of a few quarks: the up, and the down, and the strange. But it all worked. They were able to explain all those particles using just a few ideas, just a few quarks. And that again is just an extension of this goal, which is to take a huge number of things and explain them with a simpler set. And you know, speaking philosophically, I don't know why that's possible. Why is it that everything in the universe is describable in terms of a few basic building blocks? Or why is it that the multiple forces that we see can be described in terms of, you know, a smaller number of unified ideas? But we keep making progress. And so we we don't have to answer the question of why is it possible to make progress as long as we keep doing it. And people understood in the early 70s that the that the weak force, the one that's responsible for like nuclear decay, was actually another side, a third side of the coin of electromagnetism. We were able to fit these together to make the electroweak force. So at this point we have electroweak as a force. This is the strong nuclear force, the thing that holds the nucleus together. And then of course we have gravity as the oddball. And the project from there on out is to try to bring all of these together and say, maybe we can bring them all together to make just one force. Currently in our standard model, we, we haven't done that. We have the strong force, the electroweak, and then gravity is just like off on the side. We haven't even begun to really understand how that works. Right. But you see, that it's, you know, it's a work in progress. We're, we're making progress, it's sort of coalescing, but the overall picture is just like survey all the things, all the particles we see and try to explain them in terms of patterns and symmetries.
0: Now, I want to go back, because this is a, this is a weird thing for me, not being a, a particle physicist, and yet I hear, um, not a hear, I hear, that's not the right word, I see a lot of particle accelerators throughout the history of science, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. dating back to the, uh, you know, some of the first particles that, that we began finding. Where does this idea come from, kind of theoretically? Is it, is it, was it truly just as simple as it sounds, which is, if we could take particles, and hit them together really hard at high, high energies, we can pop the things inside of them out. Is it, is it truly like that analogy? Is that honestly what is occurring when you smash protons together at, at you know fractions of the speed of light? Is, is that the idea? Or is something else happening that I don't quite understand?
1: No, that's it. It's It's that plus it's E equals MC squared. The idea is... You don't just want to smash the protons open and see what's inside i mean you do and you want to understand what's in the proton and how it works and how it's all held together but you're also using the proton as a building block to make something new and you want to create something new you want to create something heavier that can't exist otherwise and e equals mc squared lets you do that because it says if you put enough energy in the form of kinetic energy of those protons, the speed of those protons, into your collision, then you don't just have to rearrange those bits like a jigsaw puzzle, um, you know, or, or um, Legos. You don't just have to do that. You can turn those into sort of a form of raw energy, which then can get turned into another particle, like a new heavy particle that's not made out of the bits of the proton, right? The bits of the proton annihilate turn into energy in the form of a photon or a Z or something, and then convert into a new kind of particle. And that's the idea of a particle accelerator, because it's not just like high-speed or high-energy chemistry. It's really, it's alchemy. We're going to take one kind of matter and turn it into a different kind of matter. It's not a rearrangement of the initial stuff into something else. It's really converting it into new kind of stuff. Um, which has different internal bits. And to me, that's the magic because that's what lets you explore. You don't have to know what you're going to make in order to make it. You just sort of like turn the thing on, it smashes stuff, and anything on nature's menu, anything that you have the energy budget to make will eventually appear in your collider, which is awesome because it means you can explore the universe without really going anywhere as long as you can build a particle collider.
0: Was there a time in the history of of this field. Now, I'm I'm kind of a I would never call myself a historian. I, I read a lot of science history. I'm very interested in science mm-hmm. history. But one aspect of science history I guess I don't know a lot about is the the maybe the period of particle physics between like uh 1970 maybe and 2012. Um so my like did were we at a point throughout that time where we were slowly discovering particles all the time? Or did we hit sort of a lull where we thought, hmm, maybe we figured nature out. Maybe, maybe we have uh, amassed the standard model, and the standard model can explain everything. And, and our job as theorists is to go um, come up with the way in which that explanation works. It, did we ever hit that point as, as a scientist and think um, there's no real need to be doing the smashing anymore? We've, we've got it all figured out. <laughs>
1: You're going to ask a particle experimentalist: Do we really need to be doing the smashing?
0: <laughs> no, of course. I do the smashing. I'm asking. I'm asking. Did the field ever think? Yeah. Or yeah. were members of the field ever thinking
1: that? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple answers to that. One is that we have discovered stuff since the 70s. You know, we found some more quarks. Like the bottom quark was discovered in the early 70s, and then the top quark was discovered in the 90s. And then the Higgs boson discovered, of course, in 2012. But the pace has definitely dropped off. You right. know, in the '50s and '60s, we were finding more particles. It was like the world was thick with particles, and now they seem to be more, uh, there seems to be more time and more energy in between them. We don't know why, right? We have no explanation for the organization of the mass of the particles. The heavier the particle the more energy you need in your collider, and therefore the bigger the collider has to be for you to discover it. Why the particles are arranged in the masses that they are, we have zero explanation for that. Zero, no, none at all. There's no pattern that we can discern. And that sort of answers the other part of the question, which is nobody is satisfied with the standard model. Nobody looks at it and goes, yeah, that's probably it. This is nature's explanation. This is like what the simulator's what what the simulation programmers put into their their code right because it's, it's it's obvious when you look at it that there are deeper answers it's painfully clear that there are ideas that could simplify this that there are questions that do not have answers you know it's like when we look at the periodic table if you had not known atomic physics in the late 1800s and you look at the periodic table what do you notice well it's periodic right there are patterns there there are patterns that are not explained. Why are all these guys over here um, metallic, and all those guys over there are very active, and these guys are very inactive? Why is that? Those questions um, lead to, lead you on the path to discovering a deeper layer of reality. You peel back a layer and you discover, oh, it's just how atomic electron orbitals are filled. And then you and to, but to get that answer, you need to understand that everything you're looking at is actually made of a smaller set of building blocks. And so now we look at a similar table, this periodic table of the fundamental particles of of the standard model, and we see a lot of patterns that we do not, that we cannot explain, we have no answers for. But they scream out to us that that this is a clue. This is a clue about some deeper order, something more fundamental that explains all of this. And so from that perspective, nobody's ever been satisfied with the standard model. We're We're all convinced it's like a pretty good effective theory for what's really going on. And, but there is a vigorous debate about whether it's worth the time and money to keep building particle smashers because it's a gamble whether or not they will reveal new particles or whether or not they will come up empty.
0: Right. Yeah. And and we will get into that because that is something um, that I talk about a lot on this show is this concept of, of spending money and where you spend money and, and how you um, sort of balance that as in in this field of all fields so we'll definitely talk about that um but i want to talk about some of the these sort of uh you know i i obviously don't think the standard model is complete you don't think the standard model is complete no one in your field today thinks the standard model is complete Mm -hmm. um and there are some glaring issues that it 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 has it cannot explain certain things and um i i want to talk about that in just a second but before we get to that I think it's kind of important that we we actually discuss something we've sort of mentioned in passing a few times, which is the Higgs boson mm. um, discovered in two thousand twelve and you were you actually working at CERN at the time?
1: Yeah, I'm a member of the Atlas collaboration have been since about two thousand and seven, so I'm on that project I was at CERN uh I wasn't as deeply involved as many of my collaborators, but yeah, I was there I was part of it
0: okay so so let's kind of kick it off from there um what is the Higgs boson for people listening who have undoubtedly heard that term um I know that you know there's a ton of sort of people who know all the popular science buzzwords but a little deeper than that what is this thing the god particle it was called <laughs> I remember every news every news uh, organization I was in uh I was in high school at the time I would have been in 10th grade um when that discovery came out and I remember, you know, thinking it had something to do, not at all really, with physics. I thought we had, like, found God or, you know, I I didn't really understand. (laughs) Um, Break it down a little for us. Uh, What is the
1: Well, it's a beautiful story because it comes out of ideas. You know, this idea we talked about earlier about unifying things, bringing things together. People had done that in the early 70s and they realized, wow, the weak force is very similar to electricity and magnetism and you can actually connect them into one larger force, electroweak. Now, the electricity magnetism, it has a particle that is used to like send the information, and that's photons. Photons are electromagnetic pulses. When electrons push against each other, repel each other, they're exchanging little photons. And the weak force has three particles that do this job. There's the W plus, the W minus, and the Z. So when you have the decay of a nucleus, your radioactive decay there's a w particle involved for example but three and one are weird numbers and it turns out if you put them together three plus one makes four you get this really beautiful set of particles that have all these symmetries and connections and it's just it's like somebody found your missing lego piece and they put it in and it all clicks together and it's beautiful except except one glaring problem which is the photon is really different from those other particles, the W and the Z, because the W and Z are really, really heavy. They have a lot of mass. That's why the weak force is so weak. And the photon, of course, is massless. And so this is called electroweak symmetry breaking. Like why is the photon have no mass, but the other particles, the other electroweak bosons do? And so you can't just like add a, a number to the theory and say, we're just gonna give it a mass. That breaks this beautiful symmetry in some sort of complicated way that involves group theory and so higgs came up with this way to do it he says ah oh, what if there's another field that fills all of space so like you know what an electric field is and what a magnetic field is here we're talking about quantum fields and it's the same thing except that they can have you know just discrete values so he imagined a whole field which filled the universe and which interacted with these particles. And it did so in a special way that happened to break this symmetry, gives mass to the W and the Z and not to the photon. And also it interacts with other particles. It interacts with the matter particles, quarks and electrons and those particles. Those particles by themselves without the Higgs boson, they wouldn't have any mass. They would have like no mass, you'd have massless quarks and massless electrons. But the Higgs boson interacts with those particles, the Higgs field, interacts with those particles and it interacts with them in a way that uh, it slows them down or it makes it harder for them to speed up but also harder for them to slow down effectively it gives them inertia so if you have the equations of motions of an electron without the higgs boson in the universe it flies around free as if it had no mass but if you add this interaction of the electron and the Higgs boson, then every time an electron wants to do something, there's a Higgs boson there interacting with it. If you add up all those little interactions and say, what is the effect on the motion of the electron, then it moves, then it looks like the electron moves as if it did have mass. So you can ask a philosophical question like, Does the electron have mass, or is it just its interactions with the Higgs field that gives it an effective mass? That's a deep philosophical question about, you know, what does it mean to be an electron? Do you you include all of its interactions with the, the universe, or is it just the bare electron? But these days, the electron that we see, the electron that we're familiar with, that was discovered in those crazy tubes 150 years ago, is the one that interacts with the Higgs boson. And so that's what we call the electron's mass and the electron and all the quarks, all the particles they interact with the Higgs in this way. And that's why they move the way they do. And that's why we say they have inertia. And so in that sense, that the Higgs boson does give them mass. It changes how they move so that it's most compactly described as if these particles had mass. So that's what was predicted in the 70s. And then People were looking for it and looking for it and looking for it. And the big question that was remaining when the theory came out was how heavy is the Higgs itself? If the Higgs is not very heavy, then it'd be pretty easy to find. You can create it in pretty low energy situations. So we knew immediately it wasn't super duper low energy. We knew immediately it wasn't super duper low mass. But so then we started building bigger and bigger accelerators to try to create it. And there was this like multi decade search. People thought maybe they would find it at this collider at CERN, the large electron proton machine which ran in the late 90s. Then people thought maybe they would find it at the Tevatron a Collider outside Chicago where I did my PhD. And then people thought, oh, maybe we'll find it at the Large Hadron Collider because nobody knew how heavy it would be. And it might have been that it was so heavy that even the Large Hadron Collider couldn't find it.
0: Now, was the Higgs the prime motivation for building a lot of these accelerators? I, I always wondered this. Um, and, and I never really got a, a good answer because was the, was the goal in building a lot of these multi-billion dollar accelerators? Um, mm-hmm. Was the goal like, let's allow the experimentalists to smash protons together and see what they find. Or was the goal we're pretty sure if we go to a higher energy, we're going to find the Higgs. And if we find the Higgs, it sort of the science pays for itself in, in that regard. Was the goal always the Higgs or was the goal pure exploration?
1: Well, you have put your finger on a very explosive topic. Um, there's a lot of different answers to that question. And the answer depends on who you're talking to, both in the field and out of the field. Like for me, it was never about the Higgs. I didn't get into particle physics to find the Higgs, because to me, that's not that exciting. Like, yeah, it's a beautiful idea. Um, It'd be cool to know if it's true or not. But I didn't get into particle physics to validate theoretical ideas, to prove a concept somebody else thought of. I got into particle physics to explore the universe. My personal scientific fantasy is not to be the person who sees the thing that everybody thinks is there my personal scientific fantasy is to stumble across something nobody anticipated to find something that makes people go what that can't possibly be true what are you crazy right. for that to be true we'd have to revisit everything you know things like discoveries of dark matter or dark energy or you know quantum mechanics and we know that we know very little about the overall nature of the universe. I mean, we've been talking about the standard model as if it's close to an explanation for how things work. But, you know, it only describes 5% of the universe. There's another mm-hmm. 27% that's dark matter, which is completely outside the realm of, of the standard model. And then 60-something percent dark energy, which is you know can't even really be described theoretically. So we know there are big mysteries out there for me. I got into this field to explore and hope to stumble across one. So I joined up to do my scientific career at the Large Hadron Collider, hoping that we would find something crazy, something bonkers, something new and weird. Now, that doesn't mean that's why we got to do this, because when you talk to funding agencies, they like a little bit more certainty than, we want to turn it on and see what happens. And a lot of people... Use the Higgs boson when they sold these machines to governments. They said, here's something we're pretty sure is there, we will find this thing, it will be really important. And I don't think that's really um, the best argument to make and I don't think it's totally honest um, because I think that most people are hoping to find something new and weird and they're not just building this this device to find the Higgs boson, but hey, maybe they do. Maybe for them the Higgs boson is the most important question. And there's one more angle, which is this complicated interplay between different countries. You know, we build these devices they have to be in one country, right? We've had one mm-hmm. in outside Chicago that was the Tevatron. For a while, the world's energy frontier, the most premier, the highest energy particle collisions created by, by humanity. Before that, it was at CERN, the large electron proton machine. Now it's at CERN again. And so there's a bit of nationalism, like, you want to be in the lead or because that's going to make your government and your funding agencies more likely to fund you for, for reasons that are political, right? Congress is more likely to pay for something if it means American physics is in the forefront. And so uh, it's the same, I think, for the European governments. So in one sense, you want to sort of promise discoveries that they can then trumpet from the rooftops to, Argue that their country um, is in the lead. You know, on the ground, these are all big international projects, and I work with Danish and Japanese and Indian and South African scientists, and I don't care one whit where anybody's from. Sometimes their accents are hilarious and they make interesting kinds of food and, you know, drink weird kinds of uh, liquor, and that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the ground, it's very international and egalitarian. But when you talk to your funding agencies, sometimes you have to make these more nationalistic or patriotic arguments.
0: Yeah, and and this is an interesting idea, and this is why I sort of... I want to talk about what the the feeling was like there at the time because um, to to sort of touch on something you mentioned, I am always torn on this concept of whether or not we should fund... How much, rather? We should definitely fund it, but how much Mm -hmm. we should fund people to just sort of poke around experimentally. And I think maybe... We're underfunding that a little bit because in my own experience, um, it was essentially impossible in the beginning days to get LIGO funded. And that was because um, the experimentalists wanted to build a machine that Einstein himself back in the early days of the 1900s was sure wouldn't work. (laughs) <laughs> um, and obviously he didn't know that there was going to be a LIGO but he was confident we would never be able to detect the strains that that sort of merging black holes or merging neutron stars would have uh, would have emanated um mm-hmm. and so it's it's tough to convince a funding agency that we should build a machine to probe the universe when yeah. the findings of such a machine um might not exist and, and I mean, this is kind of very real. In the, in the 90s, right, we could convince from a theoretical basis that gravitational waves existed. Um, but whether or not they truly existed and whether or not we would be able to build anything remotely close to being able to detect them was a very open question. And they took a gamble on that idea. But the only reason they realistically took a gamble on that idea is because we had a really well-posed theory that if two neutron stars at a certain mass were to merge, they could create some signal, and we would be able Mm -hmm. to detect that signal here on Earth. And it was kind of well suited. I don't think without that well suitedness, um, if that's even a word, we would have ever had a LIGO. And I talked to Ray Weiss about this idea. And, and he kind of uh, agrees with that, that this was an impossible project to get funded in the early days. And the only reason it ended up getting funded is because the NSF believed there was pretty much a certainty that that it would, it would work out in the end. And do you think we focus a little too much when we fund scientific projects on whether or not there's a certainty it will work out in the end? Um, should we do a little bit more basic sort of experimentalist type work where we say, here's some money, build this machine. If it doesn't work, oh, well, that's the point of having funding to begin with. Um, where do you fall on this whole idea? Sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded question, but where do you fall on this idea?
1: Oh my gosh, yes, that's where I fall on this. I fall on a thousand percent. We should be funding more exploratory science. And I totally agree with you about LIGO. And I think it's awesome and impressive that the NSF funded that thing, that it took decades to come to fruition. And now it's revealing things about the universe that are crazy and amazing and bonkers. Mm-hmm. So kudos to whoever pushed that through with the NSF and funded that thing and really made it happen. I remember as a grad student considering joining LIGO for my PhD and thinking they're never going to get that to work. Oh my <laughs> gosh, what a goose chase, right? Right. Um, and, they, and I was wrong and they did it and that's amazing. Um, and I think that we should absolutely be funding more of that stuff. And I think it's interesting sort of who gets asked the question of how do you know this is going to work or how do you know you're going to find something? It's sort of like you know who gets asked, uh, what are you gonna, how are you going to pay for it? You know, like how are you going to pay for healthcare? Nobody right. asks how are you going to pay for another aircraft carrier, um, you know, like when you send a probe to a weird to a moon or to a planet, right? We sent probes to planets to Jupiter. We had no idea if we'd see anything interesting in Jupiter. Or Jupiter's just like a frozen solid ice ball. We had no idea. It was pure exploration. But when it approached Jupiter, uh, sorry, when it approached Pluto, and sent back the first pictures. Everybody wanted to see them. Everybody wants to see them because humans are curious. We are all intellectual explorers. And I think that no matter what the answer is, we want to know it. You know, the question I I put to myself is like, would I go to a seminar on this topic? If so, then I want somebody to go do it and figure it out and come and tell me about it. I would definitely spend an hour to hear the answer to this question. And I think that we should approach particle physics and lots of, of science the same way. You don't have to know that there's going to be something there, but do I want to know whether a 100 TeV collider found new particles? Oh, yeah, I'm going to that seminar. I want to see that data for sure. Um, you know, we can talk about whether it's worth uh, having one more aircraft carrier or not, but I think we should definitely be funding science in an exploratory way because the universe is filled with surprises. Basically, every time we've turned on a new way to look at the universe, we found something new that was unexpected and blew our minds, you know, like looking like the Fermi bubbles, right? These weird bubbles of gas and relativistic electrons on the top and the bottom of um, of our galaxy that nobody even knew were there and were discovered by the Fermi telescope. Um, Every time we turn on a new kind of eyeball, a new kind of ear to the universe, we see something weird out there, like the cosmic microwave background, right? Accidentally discovered as a hiss in a radio telescope. And so there's a lot of discoveries out there we could find if we just sort of like went out and looked. Absolutely. And I think we should be doing more of that. And the thing that confuses me is why that's not a more widely held idea. You know, obviously, if you're a scientist, you think, sure let's multiply the funding for science by a factor of 10. After all, when you're at the NSF and you get proposals, there's like 10 times as many excellent, really well thought out, carefully um, considered proposals from, people at the top of their fields, then you can fund. You would gladly fund 10 times as many. So sure, scientists should be in favor of this, but also, you know, people who want uh, American economic hegemony, right? How do you get that? Well, you build the most powerful technological industry in the world. How do you get that? Through basic research. Or if you think, Oh, I want American cultural dominance. Yeah, same answer. Right, how about American like military might? Where does that come from? That comes from technology. It comes from money. It comes from basic research. All the success and the quality of life and everything we understand about the universe today comes from investments people made in exploratory basic research decades ago. So I don't get why Republicans and Democrats and independents and everybody across the board isn't like, yeah, let's cut you know, whatever we need to, or let's not cut anything. Let's just borrow the money because basic research is a tenfold easy payoff on your investment. It's always worth investing in yourselves and in your scientists. And so we should be increasing our basic research expert, um buff, <coughs> our basic research budget by a factor of five or 10. No brainer, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think we've sort of lost this is my perception, anyway. I feel as though we've lost the concept that research is not meant to um to sort of give you return on investment in the short term exactly it, right you, you you're not this isn't a product that you science is not a product that you're investing in so that you can make money next year um this is a product that you invest in because you recognize as a civilized society that it got you where you are mm-hmm. and so if you want to get where you're going then you should probably be invested in it um that that's my sort of, I think we have kind of the exact same opinion on this matter, but yeah, I think you're right. And I think
1: you've also put your finger on why we aren't doing that as much, which is that people are focused on the short term. And when you write a grant these days, you have to be like, I will do these set of studies and I will have these results and I will present them on this date. And then I'll do those set of studies. And it's very prescriptive. And the reason is that, you know, they get, 10 proposals which all seem awesome and they wanna fund the one that's most likely to succeed and the one where like, all the ideas are all laid out really carefully and clearly and there's no question marks left, that one seems most likely to succeed. And so it's just this funding pressure. If we re- relax that a little bit, if we just you know spent more money on science, then these funding agencies would feel more comfortable making some bigger, weirder bets, some long-term bets one out of a hundred, which will transform our society in a way that we can't even imagine.
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, I agree one million percent. Um, but to, to speak about these huge discoveries, um, you were at CERN at the time. And mm-hmm. I'm curious at the time of the Higgs boson discovery to sort of flip gears back back to this, because I'm very interested in how this relates to what Ray Weiss told me happened at LIGO on the day of the first um the first gravitational wave discovery. And so when that data came in, and obviously these, these two forms of data are processed in very different ways. So I don't know, I, I sort of know how LIGO's data funnels in, goes through the pipeline, You know, sort of tells them they have a detection. I have no idea how this works at CERN. I don't know if you get a data product, you, a computer tells you, I don't know anything. So you'll have to, to sort of break it down for me then. But was there doubt? Because in the case of the gravitational wave, there was so much doubt. They did not, they thought everything was wrong. They thought, they, they were to the point, Ray Weiss told me, that they were sort of calling old employees and saying, Hey, did you <laughs> sabotage us? Like some people that they knew they didn't quite sit well with. Um, and they said, Did you sabotage us in any way? They were interrogating the <laughs> undergrads, making sure they weren't injecting a signal accidentally. <laughs> I mean, they went through, you know, the most stringent sort of checks to make sure, is this a real thing? Because it was during the engineering run that they had actually made that first detection. Mm -hmm. So they did not trust it for weeks. In fact, for months, they did not trust it. They went through every avenue possible to prove themselves wrong. And they eventually found out they couldn't. And so I'm curious, is that what you noticed at CERN at that time? Did Did the groups there not believe the detection or was it um, sort of so astoundingly clear that that didn 't exist
1: it 's sort of the same story, except that it 's drawn out over a period of like eighteen months because our data comes in little trickles right mm-hmm. at LIGO, they saw one event and one event is enough for discovery. so one day, boom, you have the data you need to prove it exists where in the previous day you didn 't have the data mm-hmm. in our case, we do zillions of collisions every day, tiny fraction of them are Higgs bosons. So what we're looking for is evidence of a few Higgs, but you can't ever look at one collision and say, this one made a Higgs, this one did not make a Higgs, because we can't see these collisions very directly. We only see the stuff that sprays out from them. So it's like showing up at an intersection after a car crash and saying, oh, was this two Lamborghinis or was it two Porsches? And you sort of reconstruct it from what you find left there at the scene. And it's always a statistical statement. And so what you need is an accumulation of evidence of the kind of collisions you would expect to see only from the Higgs boson, and and much less often from the other kinds of particles that can give you the same kind of appearance in your detector. So you have to accumulate that evidence. It's like excess of events that you can't explain in any other way. And so everybody was wondering like, where is this, where is is it gonna be? In the first days, as the data starts to come in, People are looking for peaks. And remember, nobody knows where the peak is. Like, is the Higgs boson light? Is it really heavy? Is it so heavy we won't even see it? Does it exist after all? There was a contingent of people who said there is no Higgs. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of uncertainty at the beginning. And then, you know, you're looking at a Imagine looking at, um, you know, a wiggle on the screen as it just like randomly fluctuates with noise. People are going to see stuff. It's like looking at the clouds. So in the very beginning, you know, uh we saw a peak at 135 giga electron volts. It's like 135 times the mass of the proton. And people thought, oh maybe that's it. But then we got more data and it sort of faded. And um then we started to see a peak at around 120, 125. And it started to go up, but nobody really believed it at first because you know, hey, we'd seen one at 135, it went away. Maybe maybe this one will go away also. But then it just grew more and more prominent. And so as time went on, it became more and more obvious that this was something real. And I remember the day that I became convinced that this is the Higgs boson is I called a friend of mine who works at the other experiment. So we have four points of collision at the Large Hadron Collider where the proton beams cross. Each one is surrounded by a detector where you can observe these things. We have two of them that are very similar. Atlas, the one I work on, and CMS, the one my friend and 5,000 other people work on. And they're very similar in their ideas to have independent cross checks. So I called my friend over at CMS and I said, do you guys see a bump? And he said, yes. And I said, where's your bump? And he said, about 125. And I thought, oh, that's where our bump is. And that's the moment I thought this might not just be a random fluctuation. This might really be real. And then it was like another six months of, of waiting for that bump to get big enough and strong enough and sharp enough that we could say statistically that it was a very, very small chance of it just being a random fluctuation. And once we crossed that threshold, then we made the announcement. That was in July of 2012. We'd known it was there for months and months before then, and there wasn't really like a moment for most people. That was the moment for me, but for most people, I think there was just like a gradual accumulation of certainty rather than a day when you became convinced.
0: I see. Now, the discovery of the Higgs, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, was not the end of the standard model. It's not the end of particle physics. A, a quick aside, I'm curious if you ever thought this as a kid. When I was a kid, I, and, I start, and I thought I wanted to pursue this field, and my audience probably hates me saying this story because I, I swear I say it on every show, and I thought I wanted to pursue astrophysics. I was concerned for a little bit that I would run out of work, that like we would figure it all out. And then I wouldn't have anything to do and I would just get fired and then I would have to work, you know, um at, at some dead end job doing something I hated somewhere because we had we had got to the end and everyone would pack up and go home and, and the story would be over. <laughs> Did you ever worry about that? Like as a kid, obviously not as a as a as a you know, in the career right now. But when you were first getting into this field, you ever think like, Man, we're we're gonna solve it all and I'm not gonna have anything to do. <laughs>
1: No, I never worried about that. To me, it was always obvious that there was so much to understand. I felt like we're just at the very beginning of this journey of understanding the universe. I had this feeling that in 500 years, people will look back and sort of like snicker at the ideas we have today. You know, the way we sort of like chuckle with uh, with you know inside knowledge mm-hmm. um, when we read the Greeks and their ideas about like air, water, fire um, as basic elements of the universe. So I think I always had the sense that things were unfinished. And, you know, we we knew even back when I was in college that most of the universe was dark matter. We had no idea what it was. And so it was pretty obvious that there was definitely a lot of stuff to do. So I wasn't right. worried I was going to show up one day at the physics department. And it was going to be like closed. Physics is finished. Um, but that's fun. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it you know, and I, it sounds like a joke. I honestly believed it. I also, <laughs> like, used to believe that um, – I, when i was a, when i was in high school there was no physics. like my high school is a terrible terrible cesspool of a place i've talked about it on here before um so people people listening know this by now but um we, we didn't have astronomy course we didn't have physics courses we didn't have any anything like that we didn't even we didn't have good science program nothing so my concept of how you even solved a scientific problem wasn't quite developed mm. like i i literally thought that most problems in science would boil down to like a quadratic equation type solution and no and just no one had been able to finish it yet you know like when i was in ninth grade what was that if only yeah yes but that's what i thought when i was in like ninth grade i'm like okay no you know in order to discover what dark matter is we need to you know solve this set of mathematical equations and just wait until i'm in college i'm going to be able to do it um so that's kind of where that question stems from is my absolute ineptitude when it comes to what science even was huh. uh, which you know I guess no fault of my own, but you know it is what it is now I, I have another question for you along these lines and this is why I kind of brought this topic up What questions were introduced to the field at this time so every new discovery in every field of science um, it it sort of exponentially produces more questions and so what? sort of questions came from the discovery of the Higgs that are still huge open questions that no one really understands and that we didn't even know we didn't know until the Higgs was discovered.
1: (laughs) Right, nice. Um, I think there's sort of two categories. One is sort of like tying up loose ends, that is, is this really the Higgs? Like when we saw the Higgs boson, we saw it do one thing, which is turn into two photons, and that's pretty cool, and we didn't know another particle that could do that, and so we were pretty sure this is something new and interesting. But the actual discovery papers, they don't say, you know, we know this is the Higgs. They say it's a a boson, it turns into two photons, it has this mass. But there's a lot of questions because there are a lot of different particles that that might have been able to do that, but then have different um, other properties, like does it also turn into two bottom quarks like we expect? Does it turn into two Ws? Um, Does it do that at the ratios that we expect? So there's a lot of like box checking to make sure that the particle we saw actually is the Higgs boson, or to discover that it's not, right? That maybe it looks a lot like the Higgs, but there's a surprise there. It does this other weird thing on every other Tuesday or something. And so that was a whole new area of work opened up by discovering the Higgs because now you could study it. You could make it copiously and you could study it and say, is this the thing we've been looking for? Now, so far, it is the thing we thought we were looking for in the most vanilla, boring, simple way you could imagine. It's the simplest Higgs boson uh, theory that we could describe. It's just a particle and decays in two other particles. Some people thought maybe there'd be like several Higgs bosons, or it would have some weird decays or interact with dark matter or something weird. So far we haven't seen any of that. But uh, there is a really fascinating field that it, that d- discovering the Higgs has opened up a whole new, brand new, really deep question about the universe. And that's about the mass of the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson weighs about 125 times the mass of the proton. And as I said before, the theory doesn't predict what its mass is. Like when Peter Higgs worked it out, he could solve this problem he was trying to solve if it was 125 or if it was five hundred, or if it was three thousand protons in mass, and nobody knew what the answer was, and so we went out, we measured it, one hundred twenty-five, and that's actually kind of a really weird number. It's a strange number. It seems unusually, or seems weirdly, low mass. Like if you ask theorists to predict the mass of the Higgs boson from other ideas, a lot of them said, you know, a two2,000 protons instead of like one hundred twenty-five. And that's because the way the Higgs interacts with the other particles tends to make it also very, very heavy. And so in order for it to, have to be so light, you have to like balance out a lot of really weird knobs. It's like you have two knobs about the Higgs boson and they can be set to any value. And in order to get things goes on to be so low in mass only 125 is a very narrow range of values you could set those knobs and they have to be very very fine-tuned to get them to be very to get the mass to be so small and so this opens up this question like well why is it so small what's going on is there some mystery there some symmetry some reason it has to be so light or is it just random and we live in the multiverse. And in our universe, these knobs happen to be set to these values, and that's why we exist and are here to ask this question right But it's a question that nobody knows the answer to and and has sparked a lot of curiosity uh, because we discovered the Higgs boson and because we found it to be so light. And there are some fascinating potential answer, answers to those to the, this mystery, but we haven't uh, we haven't settled on one yet.
0: I'm excited I'm excited for the community to settle on some. Um, I'm also excited for the community to settle on some other interesting problems. Um, and so I want to spend a few minutes to talk about this. We um, Obviously, we can't jump into these too, too deep, but there are some open questions in the standard model. We mentioned it earlier, and I kind of want to um, jump into some of these now, explain sort of what the problems are and why they don't fit in the standard model. Um, and so I wrote three down that came to my mind. And uh, you tell me if I'm correct in saying that the standard model cannot account for these and if they are the biggest problems that the standard model cannot account for. Maybe I missed some. Um, My problems are neutrinos with mass. Is that that an open problem in particle physics?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, For a long time, people thought neutrinos had dough mass. Then we discovered they actually do have mass, and it's not something we can really explain. We don't understand why they have the masses they have. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then dark matter and dark energy, which you mentioned in passing, but we, we should probably spend some time on sort of breaking yes. that down. Um, and then we can get to the next – the next, the next one is gravity. I'll spoil it for you. Um, <laughs> but, but let's spend some time on dark matter and dark energy. What are these things from your perspective? I love making people in different fields describe different things because I sort of – what I end up doing is I end up taking pieces of all of your explanations and then crafting cool. my own. Um, you know, adding to it because everyone has very different ways of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Everyone has different analogies that they've thought about mm-hmm. you know, while they laid in bed at night or or wherever they do their thinking. Um, so, dark matter and dark energy—what are they? Why don't they fit neatly into the standard model? And how might we explain them?
1: Yeah, great questions. Um, they're very different things, right? The only thing that dark matter and dark energy have in common is the word dark. Which is something we use in science often to mean we're clueless, because neither of them are actually dark. Both of them, um, you know, are very bright and apparent. You know, so like dark matter, what is it? It's matter. We know that it's out there. We know that it has this gravitational effect all over the universe. It's the reason that galaxies can spin so fast but hold themselves together. Without dark matter, there doesn't seem to be enough stuff in galaxies to allow them to spin so fast without tossing their stars into interstellar or intergalactic space. It's affected the evolution of the structure of the universe, like why are there galaxies here and not galaxies over there? Well, probably because there's a huge blob of invisible dark matter creating a gravitational well that f- funneled all of the matter together, the gas to make stars and galaxies together. So that's why we're here and not like one billion light years to the right. Um, dark matter affected the very, very early universe. So what we know about dark matter is that it's matter, it has gravitational effect, We know that it doesn't interact in any other way that we are familiar with. It doesn't give off light. It doesn't reflect light. It doesn't interact with the weak force. It doesn't interact with the strong force. Um, It only interacts with gravity. You know, it doesn't even have like social media or anything. No way to get in touch with dark matter other than gravity.
0: That probably makes it have exceptionally well, or exceptionally good mental health. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes Twitter, man. (sighs) Drives me up, up
1: a wall. It's a, bit anyway. of a black hole. Yeah. Yes. And uh, we also know that dark matter is not made of the same stuff that we're made of. It's not just like a bunch of big dark rocks out there that we can't see very well with our telescope because they don't glow. It's some new kind of stuff, and we know that because we know about how the early universe made our kind of stuff. And the very early universe, you know, made hydrogen and helium and lithium and this kind of stuff in the big bang, this big bang nucleosynthesis, when the first elements were forged. And, <clears throat> and the amount of those various elements, helium and lithium and hydrogen, is very sensitive to like the number of quarks that exist, like the density of quarks. And so that gives us like a measurement, like how many quarks were there back in the early universe? Because we know how they filtered together to make lithium and helium and hydrogen and so that gives us like a sense for how much ordinary matter there was. And so it can't be that dark matter is just like another arrangement of quarks and leptons because we know how much there was and we can account for all of it. It has to be something new, something extra. But that doesn't mean that we know what it is, right? We know a lot about what it is, that basically just that it creates gravity um, and that it's fairly slow moving, but we really don't know what it is. It might be a particle, we, we talk about it being a particle mostly because we don't have a better idea for what it is. You know, it's like uh, you talk to a particle physicist about something new; they're going to assume let's assume it's made out of particles. But that's only because we've everything we've seen before has been made out of particles. It doesn't mean that everything actually is. It could be that dark matter is made out of some new weird kind of stuff that isn't described by particles. You know, unparticle matter or something else, something strange, I would love for it to be something new and weird, not just another kind of particle. We don't know if dark matter has any interactions with itself. We're pretty sure it doesn't interact in any way with our kind of matter other than through gravity, but it might be that it has some sort of interesting self-interactions that allow it to have, like, dark physics and dark chemistry, maybe even dark biology, right? There could be like a dark podcast out there having a conversation about, uh, you know, what's that mystery 5% of the universe we haven't yet figured out. Um, so dark matter, we're pretty sure it's there. We're pretty sure it's matter, right? It's some kind of stuff. It has its own gravity, but we don't know what it is. And, and that's a huge failing of the standard model because remember, the standard model is our attempt to answer the question what is the universe made out of you can't pretend to be answering that question if you're only talking about one tiny little slice of the pie because dark matter is five times as prevalent as our kind of matter people are tempted to call it normal matter or regular matter but you know when you're the unusual tiny little sliver of the universe you don't get to call yourself the normal ones we're the un we're the abnormal bit of the universe right. most of the matter in the universe is dark matter most of our galaxy is dark matter and so yeah you got to address this question you got to figure out how to explain it because remember our goal is to have a unified understanding we don't want to say here's one kind of thing here's another kind of thing about which we have a different set of rules we want to understand the rules which means we need to unify and have a consistent picture and so far we don't know if dark matter is made out of particles and that means we don't know how to bring it into the standard model
0: yeah now I, I, you know interestingly dark matter is one of those uh one of those sort of avenues where we are funding people to just go out and do experimental searches. Um, it is kind of one of those, those fields where we're funding some projects to try to detect dark matter in, a, in a various ways, whether it be a particle or whether it be some other crazy uh, like for example, right now I'm, I'm doing some work um, where I'm trying to assume dark matter is an axion and and all of these axions are creating gravitational waves, and maybe we can create, we can actually detect the gravitational wave signature. And and so there's a lot of experimental work going on out there um, in the in the world of dark matter, and that is kind of cool to see. It is kind of cool to see experimentalists getting their um, getting their due, if you will, in that field in particular. Do you do you see that too? Do you agree with me?
1: I think so. I think there's a healthy breadth of ideas. People are getting funding to look for weird kinds of dark matter like axions or WIMPs or something else. And there is a lot of fun exploration there. And a lot of these experiments may never see anything, right? right. And I think that's great. I think it's great that we have a, we're pursuing a lot of different ideas. I think for a long time, the WIMP paradigm, the idea that dark matter was this particle, this weakly interacting massive particle, was maybe too dominant. And Everybody was sort of looking for WIMPs in lots of different ways. And yeah. that we haven't seen WIMPs where we expect I see this sort of resurgence of old ideas, like, hmm, maybe dark matter is primordial black holes, or maybe it's axions, or maybe it's something else new and weird. And I, I like to see that. I like to see this breadth of experiments. Absolutely. I think that's healthy, and it's fun. And the bonus is that one of these experiments may discover something they weren't looking for, right? Like, not dark matter, but some other new, strange thing. You know, the the experiments that led to the discovery of the existence of dark matter were not looking for dark matter, right? They were just like understanding galactic rotation curves. And that's the kind of bread and butter work that, you know, careful bookkeeping and dotting of I's and crossing of T's that lead to cracks in our understanding that when when you hammer a wedge into and bang on it, break open everything. And so, yeah, I think it's great. I love the whole field of dark matter.
0: Yes, I, I do too. You know, the, the if there's any like ultraviolet astronomers listening to the show right now, they are eating up every word we're saying because that is <laughs> one avenue of the universe that has just been neglected because the assumption is nothing exciting is going on in the UV universe. And if we mm. just built like an ultraviolet telescope and, and put it in space, we would probably find so much cool shit, but we don't do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Just I will
1: pay more taxes yeah. to build a UV space telescope for <laughs> sure.
0: I will monitor the government and make sure they're using our tax money in a responsible way in order to pay for a uv telescope
1: oh man it's a it's pennies in the bottom of the government's budget yes and and we could just use it to buy knowledge you know the thing is like There are not really big technological hurdles. There's not that many engineering problems. Like we decide to spend our money in this. We just go buy knowledge about the universe. It's like you're standing in front of a universe knowledge candy store and you got money in your pocket and you just walk on by. I I don't know how people do it. It's craziness.
0: Now gravity. How does gravity not fit
1: into the standard model? What's going on there? Yeah. The gravity is a big puzzle, right? We have this whole standard model, which is built on the foundations of quantum mechanics, right? it came out of the understanding of the electron as a quantum wave, and then into quantum field theory of multi-particles. Now we have this complicated theory that explains how all these particles are just like little wiggles in quantum fields. And gravity's not like that. Gravity, of course, invented by Einstein, or special and special general relativity invented by Einstein to explain gravity. And he did this before quantum mechanics was really a thing. So his theory of gravity is a classical theory, meaning that it assumes things about the universe we know to not be true. Like, you can know the location and the velocity of all particles at, at all times. Right, that's a classical theory, assumes that particles even have trajectories, that essentially it looks at the universe and says, oh, everything is made out of these tiny little particles which behave according to the same rules that we're familiar with in the macroscopic scale. Basically, it's the tiny basketballs universe, Right, that everything is just like a bunch of really small balls that are all moving around and everything else emerges from that. But we know that's not true, right? We know that the universe doesn't work that way, that at the very smallest scale, things follow different rules. They don't even have trajectories. You can't say an electron because it was in point A, and then later it was in point B. You can't say it went from A to B, right? Things don't move through space. They were at A, later they were at B. That doesn't imply they went from A to B. That's an assumption you make because of your experience in the classical world, you know, with basketballs and baseballs and stuff so gravity is not a quantum theory but we know the universe is quantum and so we have tried to develop a quantum theory of gravity say well let's try to describe gravity using our new quantum understanding can we do that and people have spent a lot of time on this and it's very hard and a lot of the theories don't work mathematically like if you you can try to build a quantum theory of gravity, but when you do, you get nonsense numbers. Like you ask questions like, "What happens at the center of a black hole?" and you get infinities and negatives mm-hmm. and things that just don't make physical sense. It's like when you're solving the quadratic equation, sometimes one of your solutions is nonsense, right? It's like right. Um, a negative or, or something. Well, we get nonsense answers, and so nobody has a theory of quantum gravity that works at like the very beginning of the universe or in the center of black holes but something is going on at the center of black holes there was a beginning uh, there was something that happened 14 billion years ago that's a special moment in time so there is an answer there is you know quantum gravity is a real thing we just don't have a good theory of it yet and so until we can marry these two pillars of the universe these pillars of our understanding of the universe then we can't even really claim to say we have an understanding for what gravity is and how it works and, and this is one that has, like, really deep implications for the kind of things you were talking about earlier, about where we come from and, where, and how long we'll survive. Because, for example, quantum mechanics and general relativity say very different things about the nature of time and the universe. Quantum mechanics says the universe has to be eternal, because according to quantum mechanics, information is never lost everything that happens now leaves a unique imprint on the future so that with perfect information you could like back out what happened Mm -hmm. you know technologically speaking you have the wave function of the universe the schrodinger equation tells you how that moves forward and backwards and so it makes no sense in quantum mechanics for their universe to not exist at some point like where does information come from where is it how does it go where did it go so quantum mechanics says the universe has to be eternal Whereas general relativity says no, space is not static; it's dynamic and it's expanding. And something weird and special happened 14 billion years ago. Um, I can't tell you exactly what because my theories break down at that point. But these two things differ fundamentally on their pictures of the universe and also for what they mean about how long the universe has been around and will be around.
0: Yeah, I w- I would like to probe you more on these kind of questions, um, but I. We're, we only have about 15 minutes left and there is something else I want to get to Daniel. Sure. So sorry to abruptly change the topic on you. I'm sure you oh. could talk about gravity and gravitons, for the, which <laughs> is where we were going next, but we're going to have to save that for a, another episode.
1: Cool. Um,
0: but great. I could talk about this stuff forever, but just to switch gears a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I naturally do my preparations for a show. I read all about you. I watch some of the interviews you've done. I, I do, all, you know, I, I do all the responsible things that you should do as an interviewer. And one of the, the sort of things I came across that you do in your research group is so cool to me, and it turned out to amount to a super cool idea. Um, and that is Crayfish, which, why didn't you complete the acronym with an H? <laughs> What's going on here? Let's start there.
1: starts stands for Cosmic Rays found in smartphones and so we couldn't think of a way to get that H in there um, but we had long discussions about what to call this thing um, and some people are still unhappy about it.
0: You could do smartphones owned by humans.
1: <laughs> get it with that H. Um, I don't know but we'll call you up next time we have to invent a, a, an acronym for an experiment. Yes if,
0: if you need me I do consulting on the acronyms I do. Um, <laughs> awesome. And, okay but anyway the, the, the idea is um, that your research group gets together and they come up with research ideas that are meant to be like, have no bounds on, on practicality or feasibility or anything like that. Where does this idea Is it first off? Is this true? Whoever is writing about this? And then secondly, um, where does this idea come from?
1: This is an amazing idea. Yeah, it's definitely true. We do this. It's really fun. And it comes from my frustration with sort of the nature of particle physics as a field. You know, we work in these collaborations of 5,000 people and we work on these projects that are multi year. And sometimes for an individual student, for a PhD student, when you end up doing your PhD, it's not like I have some crazy new idea. I'm going to see if I can make it work. And you're plugging away for five years and either it works or it doesn't. It's more like, here's a project it's in iteration 24 we want you to take it to iteration 25 which means do everything the same way it was done last time but now with more collisions and try to improve it a little bit but the experience is typically like understand the software implement all these things people tell you how to do and sometimes it doesn't feel to me like there's a lot of room for creativity there in fact creativity can be sometimes like stamped out like no, 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 don't have any new ideas. We gotta get this result out for the next conference. Particle physics is a competition. We have Atlas versus CMS and Mm -hmm. CMS is gonna have their new measurement of the Higgs boson mass. We have to have ours ready for that conference also. So it's become this very like, you know, conference driven, the quarterly report kind of field. And I felt like there was something missing in the training for grad students there. And something which is sort of joyful about science which is being creative so i said let's have these meetings where everybody has to show up with two ideas and there's no limit on like how much your idea will cost to implement or whether you think it's at all practical just i wanted people to exercise that part of their brain where they were thinking what is my question about the universe and how would i answer it if i had an infinite resource how would i answer it and we did all sorts of really fun things like we asked questions like you know can you use ATLAS as a way to detect dark matter collisions with protons in the beam? Like if there's dark matter all around, eventually some of these protons should bump into one. If they can see these things at underground experiments, we should be able to see dark matter proton interactions at ATLAS, right? And right. it's an instrumented volume. It's surrounded by the most expensive scientific apparatus ever to see exactly this kind of thing. And so that's like an idea one of my students came with. And we did the calculations. We discovered, yeah, you could use it to discover dark matter, but it's 10 to the 14 times less sensitive than Xenon and the other experiments. So like probably not worth doing, but hey, you didn't know until you had the idea and sat down and calculated it. And so that's a really fun thing. It's something I really look forward to. And something an assignment I give to myself also, like think of something new, what would you do what's your next project because as a scientist you've got to always constantly reinvent yourself and to keep it interesting and to and to to keep the drive going and so one of these meetings five or so years ago i actually showed up uh, at the meeting with the same idea as one of my students with like the same concept which was the phone the which was the the camera in your phone is a funny little piece of electronics you know cameras these days obviously are not filmed they're digital mm-hmm. how does a digital camera work it works by detecting photons and hey we're particle physicists photon is a particle dig into how does a little piece of silicon detect a photon well photon comes in it hits the camera it displaces a bunch of electrons which would then create a little current, and that's how it detects it. And we thought, well, that's basically the same technology we use at the LHC. We have these slices of silicon that surround our collisions, and it's exactly the same physical process. When muons or electrons or whatever pass through them, they displace electrons, which we then pick up as a little current. And so, essentially, your phone has a camera, but that camera is also a little particle detector. So that was cool kind of cool and then we thought well could we use it to see particles and you know you might not be aware but we're constantly we're surrounded by a stream of invisible particles like you're familiar with all the matter around you but there's a lot of matter around you you can't see specifically particles from space muons and other stuff raining down through the atmosphere so at this meeting, we thought, well, let's try it. And so that Christmas break, I wrote my first ever app, which was this very small app on an Android phone that would just scan images on the camera and ask, are there any unusual blips? So I would cover the camera with black tape and just let it sit there for an hour and scan all the images for like a white dot on a black field. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and we saw some, and we saw some about the level you would expect from muons from the top of the atmosphere so we thought wow that's cool and then we're like well this is this is a fun project but can we use it to do any science is this just like a fun little gizmo or can you actually like you know do something with this because the cool thing about smartphones is there are a lot of them you know there's like millions of them turned on every day and there's billions of them on the planet Collectively, this represents an investment by humanity on the scale of trillions of dollars, right? Imagine you had trillions of dollars to build a telescope to look out into the universe. So we thought, well, let's try to turn this network of smartphones into a telescope. And it turns out that there's a really fascinating open question in astrophysics, I'm sure you're familiar with, that's all about, that could be solved by having a huge Earth-sized telescope, And that mystery is the mystery of where really high energy particles are coming from. Right. The earth is at the earth's atmosphere is constantly being bombarded by particles from the sun, the solar wind, but also particles from other sources from out in the galaxy. And as you go higher and higher in energy, they become rarer and rarer, but they just keep going. And, you know, if you ask astrophysicists, like what's the highest energy particle you expect to ever have anywhere in the universe, You know, they take a particle from a supernova and they whiz it around a black hole and whatever, and they get a number. But we see particles hitting the earth that are like a thousand or a million times more energetic than that. And that means something amazing. It means there's something out there creating particles at a new high energy we didn't know existed, right? Some new thing in the universe or a new life form of a star or, hey, maybe it's like alien particle physicists and this is like the pollution from their massive you know, solar system-sized accelerator. Who knows? It's a clue about something new. And when these particles hit the Earth, they create these big showers. It's like a little meteor striking the atmosphere. One particle hits two and gives up some of its energy, which then hit four, which then hit you know, a zillion. And by the time they reach the bottom of the atmosphere, the Earth's surface, you have zillions of particles with all this energy. And you get these big splashes. They're like kilometers wide of these big showers that came from those particles and because they're so rare we haven't seen very many of them we have like you know a dozen or so which means that we can't really point back in space and say where are these coming from because there aren't very many so if you could see more of them if you could collect for example hundreds a year then you could do some really interesting astrophysics or astronomy and say like wow, look, these all seem to be coming from that one planet around that star or they're coming from everywhere. There must be some ubiquitous source of this stuff. And so we thought if we could write this app and spread it around the world and people ran it on their phones at night, we could tie those phones together and and uh, and use them as a nighttime telescope that spanned the Earth. And so we did a little calculation to ask like, well, how many phones would you need in order to do like top shelf level astrophysics at the level of like existing hundred million dollar facilities and we did some calculations and we came up with a number and the number is like in the millions you need like 10-ish million phones running in order to build a facility that basically can do astrophysics at the international scale you know where we would learn things about the universe and the exciting thing is While millions is a big number, it's small compared to the number of phones out there, right? Imagine you get a billion phones and you'd have like a thousand times greater power to look at the universe. So that was really exciting. And, um, you know, since then we got really excited about it. We wrote that paper. People were, half the community was like, awesome, do it. The other half was like, you're crazy. That'll never work and we went to the NSF, and we we're like, what do you think? Can you give us some money to help make this thing really happen? And they were like, we love your idea, but we don't have any money for you. Make it work, and then come back to us. And so that's sort of where we are. We've been like limping along with small funds from, from various places, doing proof of principle, making the app like really robust so that it actually works and doesn't drain people's battery and this kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a real project. It's a side project for us for a while until we really make this thing uh, solid and robust and find some funding so we can make it a reality. Where can people get the app? So you can go to our website, which is crayfist.io, and you can sign up to be a beta tester. Right now, the app is not quite ready for like full-on prime-time distribution to billions of people, but you can sign up uh, to be notified when it is ready, and we're constantly adding more beta testers uh, we have a small network of people giving us feedback. Where we're taking data to measure muons and try to understand them, and improve the performance, the lifetime of the app. Um, so yeah, we're looking forward to the day we can actually release it wide.
0: That's awesome. Um, I I could stay here and talk to you forever, Daniel. There's still you know like 40 topics that we didn't quite get to that we'll have to have you back on if you'd be willing some some time in the in the future.
1: I'd love to. Um, this is super fun.
0: Yes. But for now, it's it's time to, to call it quits. I appreciate you being here. Can you just please, before we uh, go off the air, tell people um, if they're interested, where they can find you and, and the various projects that you do?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm online. You can just Google me. And If you have questions about the kind of stuff I do, send me an email. I'm Whiteson at gmail.com. But I also do a podcast twice a week with my good friend and longtime collaborator, Jorge Cham, the genius behind PhD Comics. Our podcast is called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. And we talk about all this crazy physics and we make silly jokes about bananas. And I also recently made a TV show uh, together with Jorge. It's on PBS. So if you've got kids that are, you know, like ages three, four, five, and they're interested in science or you'd like them to be interested in science, check out our new show. It's called Eleanor Wonders Why. It's about a curious little bunny rabbit exploring the nature around her and asking questions and figuring out the answers herself. And so you can find me online. I'm also on Twitter at Daniel Whiteson. Uh, Come and ask me a question. I answer all my emails.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for doing this, Daniel.